0: Hey, this is Chuck Dixon, and you're listening to Signal of Doom.
1: (laughs) Oh, you know, for me, the action is the juice.
0: I'm in. Okay, we're on mm. Signal of Doom with Roy Thomas, the master himself. Uh, Roy, else, firstly, welcome to Signal of Doom, and thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I want to kick things off, Roy, by saying, firstly, we always ask every single creator who comes on the show, Betty or Veronica, Roy?
1: Betty or Veronica? Oh. Hey, these days you can get in trouble for that. You know, Some people are going to say Jughead or... Moose or somebody, but... You uh,
0: can say whoever you want, man.
1: uh, (laughs) uh, If I have have to choose between Betty and Veronica, two beautiful women who look almost exactly identical except for hair color, you know, uh, and uh, even their personality didn't seem that much different to me. One had a little more money. I'll I'll just flip a coin.
0: Fair enough, Roy. Fair enough. (laughs) They're beautiful women. Now, leading oh, into uh, this interview, husband. I read Avengers Kree Skull War for the first time. Um, this is great, pulpy sci-fi action, Roy. It really holds up. Uh, firstly, congratulations. I'm surprised they haven't done a movie of it yet.
1: Well, they did use a number of elements from the Kree Skrull War in the Captain Marvel movie, you know, four years ago, uh, you know, the, about Carol Danvers. They used a lot of the Kree Skull thing there, although... I didn't like the fact that they made it look like the Krulls were somehow a little more noble than the Krees because my idea from the very beginning was they were both, you know, equal and one was not better than the other.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I I get that. Um, Something I noticed was it flowed from one issue to another and it was like a seven or eight issue arc. By that time period in the late 60s, Had it become more standard to do longer arcs, or was Kree Skull War one of the first of its kind, to have such a long story?
1: I don't think there were were storylines that ran on a number of issues. I think some of the things that Stan and Steve Ditko did in Spider-Man ran on for several issues. And, you know, uh, mostly they thought in terms of two or three issues, like the Galactus Trilogy... I think I was just expanding that a little bit. Uh, Maybe somebody else can come up with an example. And, of course, you also had ongoing serials, like those 10- or 12-page stories of, like, The Hulk and Tales to Astonish. And those were these stories that would seem like they were going on forever. So uh, I was just trying to, you know, do the same thing, except with full issues instead of 10-page stories. Uh, But it wasn't that I was deliberately trying to make a longer epic. I just had a story I wanted to tell that, would involve the Kree and the Skrulls, these two main Marvel uh, alien races that uh, the Fantastic Four had encountered, and wanted to postulate what would happen if the two of them were engaged in a war. And, of course, the Earth is kind of caught in the crossfire between that. And Stan had never really thought about, uh, you know, doing that, even though he and Jack had co-created both the, uh, the Kree and the Skrulls. So since Stan had no plans to do anything like that, I got permission from him to do it. I had no particular idea at the time how many issues there would be. I was just gonna start off with it and see where it went. That was the freedom I had at that time. If I wanted it to be five issues or 10 issues, it was all right with Stan, as long as I made every issue have something in it so that a person who read it would feel like he got more or less a complete story, even if it was a chapter and a longer story. As long as I did that, Stan was fine with it.
0: That's great. Um, some, that's something I noticed as early on in the story, uh, Rick Jones is thinking about superhero comics and you see Golden Age guys like Captain America He's thinking about. If I'm not uh, incorrect, I thought I saw Batman or very close facsimile of Batman. How did you sneak that one in, Roy?
1: No, no. I deliberately used characters that I felt would be in the public domain. I was not about to use Batman. That was Catman. Ah, years right. before Batman had an enemy named Catman, there was a character called Catman who looked. And remember that that's in what we call a knock. That panel is in what we call a knockout color at that time, which meant it's like one color or or you know, a couple of different tones. It wasn't in the natural colors of what the costume would be. So if you had a somewhat Batman-like costume, you would look like Batman because you didn't see the color. And so and Catman looked like that. He had cat ears instead of bat ears, but what's the difference, you know? Uh, I had it's what? Right. I had? I had Catman, and he, you know, four or five other characters. But all of those, I think, were in the public domain. That was the uh, original idea, because you know, I, I I think that when I got around in issue number ninety seven to having that pay off, I could have used those uh, public domain characters at Marvel too. Uh, but uh, a, I don't know if Sam would have liked it, and B, I think you know, at that time, I thought, well, maybe it's better to just use the Golden Age Marvel characters instead. Instead of in you know, a lot of characters where somebody might suddenly come out of the Woodworths and work and say, hey, I have a you know copyright or trademark or something on that character.
0: Yeah, I understand. But,
1: um, but, a, a by the way, to... Catman was in there because I wanted to be Batman.
0: Yes, yes, I understand. When you first came on to Avengers... Um, was it challenging to come straight into the footsteps of Stan? Like, what was the reader feedback at the time? Did you experience any skepticism? Because you seemed to really hit the ground running.
1: Well, I had to because, you know, I, I hit the ground running in the middle of a story that Stan and Don Heck had already worked out. Uh, like with so many of the series I did in the early days, I, the first thing I did was to write dialogue for a story that Stan had already plotted with the artist. And, so the, and then the next issue, I'd get onto my own plot. So that was a nice way of easing me in. Stan did that with Sergeant Fury, and then he did it with X Men. Then he did it with uh, Shield at one time, and of course, he he did it with Avengers. So uh, you had to kind of hit the ground running. Besides, I had always I had been an Avengers fan from the very beginning uh, because it was very much like you know the groups I liked at DC, like the Justice League, and even more so the nineteen forties Justice Society of America, uh, which was a combination of some of the big characters that the company had. Uh, the only thing was I wasn't wild about the fact that Stan had uh, d- had downed, downsized that group or downpowered that group, you know, back in number 16 by getting rid of Thor, Giant Man, and uh, Iron Man, and having it just be Captain America and three losers as far as I was concerned. So I wasn't real happy about the roll call at the time, and I immediately set about to try to bring Thor and uh, Iron Man back in whenever I humanly could. And Stan would keep making me take them out. He'd let me bring them back for one issue, but he'd say, "No, no, I don't want them in. It causes too many continuity problems." You know, why? How can they? How can Captain America or Thor be doing something in Avengers when he's also on a quest in, uh, you know, in his own magazine? That kind of thing. My feeling was, you know, if people don't know this is a comic book, you know, they're just crazy anyway. So, uh, you know, yeah. I, I felt the comics would be handled realistic enough, and if we needed a couple of footnotes to say this takes place before or after. I felt we could manage that. Stan had wanted to avoid it, and I can understand why, but my whole campaign was exactly the opposite of his. I wanted to bring back the big guns, and eventually I was allowed to, but it took a couple of years. He tried to voice me off with uh, these and Black Panther. They were just having Iron Man and Thor in there.
0: Yeah. Um, You seem very comfortable with team books throughout your whole career, right from the start uh, at Marvel with Avengers, through to things like all-star squadron were you using a kind of formula or method uh mm-hmm. when you were starting out to write those teen books or was it a case that you really were a natural with that kind of stuff
1: well i don't i don't know if i exactly had a, a template but if i did it was really it was basically dc's all-star comics from 1940 to 1951 you know which had hawkman flash green lantern wonder woman in it, and occasionally even superman and batman And that was my favorite comic book of all time as a reader. You know, it's still like one of the ones I hold on to as as a collection. And I I love that concept. That was the concept the original Avengers had had, too. You know, that's what the Justice League came out of. So whenever I took over a a, a team book, be it X-Men or Avengers, or when I co-created the All-Star Squadron thing a, a little later, my template was always the Justice Society of America.
0: I see. That's yeah. Okay. That's and that's a great template. Now, I want to switch gears for a second. and talk about one of the greatest characters in comics, Wolverine. Uh, you are talking to a huge Wolverine fan. Can you take us through, Roy, your role in Wolverine? Because he seems to be one of those great characters with a lot of daddies. Like what? 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 T- take us through your role in Wolverine. And, well, and I believe you've got a book or something that's coming out to do with the anniversary
1: um no not not a book really uh, about the anniversary of wolverine it, it's you know they're doing of course he's going to be in a movie next year that'll celebrate the anniversary and uh um i did a story with the wolverine for uh marvel two-part x-men story that came out you know a couple of months ago and i, I was okay. very happy to do that and i wouldn't mind doing something else my part in wolverine uh was simple i came up with the the name and the idea I mean, obviously, I didn't make up the word Wolverine existed, but I had known what a Wolverine was, you know, since I was a kid, because my early, one of my earliest things was I wanted to be a big game hunter, you know, like Frank Buck, bring him back alive, collecting animals for zoos. I read all the books on animals I could. I went to zoos whenever I could. And uh, I, I want, what I wanted to do at the time as editor-in-chief in 74, I wanted to... Uh, sell some comic more comic books That was you know my job as editor-in chief anything I could think of and it occurred to me suddenly that I don't know five percent ten percent eight percent whatever of our readers were Canadian they were you know buying it right next door and so forth I mean obviously I knew there were Australians New Zealanders people in England etc <laughs> but there were big thing about one the population of the United states but still it's 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 our neighbor it, it, it has the, the uh, uh Basic culture was fairly similar. And I thought, you know, we didn't have one single character. There was no character in the entirety of comic books that I knew of that was Canadian. You know, I mean, if somebody was, they hadn't bothered to mention it. Uh, And uh, sometimes there'd be somebody who would come in who was British, you know, and so they'd have the British Batman kind of character or something. But nobody seemed to bring in uh, Canadians because it was too much like the United States. So I told uh, writer Len Wein, because he was writing, the Hulk could wander around. So he did, he wasn't stuck in New York or San Francisco. He could wander around and be in the Canadian wilderness or whatever, anytime he wanted to. And so I told Len Wein, uh, as one of our best writers, the regular writer of the Hulk, yeah. a, a comic, you know, that I used to write. I said, just, uh, I said, I want it right away. I said, I want a character called Wolverine. I want him to be, he's Canadian. And I said, Len had done some acts, characters with accents. And I thought, well, you know, Canadian accent shouldn't be too hard. You throw in a few A's at the end and things like that. And I said, Mm -hmm. and because he's Wolverine, I said I want him to have two characteristics of the Wolverine animal, which is um, one is that he's small or short because a Wolverine is a small animal. And the other thing is that he's very bad-tempered and fierce because a Wolverine is noted for attacking animals like deer and so forth that are 5, 10, 15 times their own size and quite often winning. So I figured... That was enough, and I and at that point I just left it to Len to do the rest, and I went to John Ramida, who was the art director, and said, does, does, "Can design a character, you know, a costume for a character, even though he was Herb Trimpe was going to draw the the Hulk book." I said, "Design a character called the Wolverine, please, you know." Uh, and, and so let John told me later he didn't know what a Wolverine was. He thought it was a female wolf, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, so he looked it up and discovered it's this little animal. And he knew that I wanted it to be short and so forth. So he drew the, see, he did the uh, Wolverine costume. And uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, I mean, uh, John and I were the two people who, you know, I came up with the general idea and John first drew it. But when the credits come out in the book, quite rightly so, and they certainly contribute a lot too. It's it's like, you know, it's it's like Len Wein and Herb Trimpey. But of course, and nobody knows that Len was handed one part of it and Trimpey another. So there are actually three or four different people you know who uh, contributed to the creation of uh, of wolverine and i was really you know kind of happy to see that character come out len added a lot of stuff he he uh, he gave him the claws uh, john ramita had designed those claws and at and, and all and the whole look but it was len who came up with the idea of making them be out of adamantium which of course i liked because that was a a, a metal that i had invented in the first place mm. and uh you know, and, then, and Len added all these little details of coming out of the we- Weapon X program and all that kind of thing. And and, and and then he just, you know, then the Wolverine kind of disappears for a little while and so forth to pop up again in, uh, you know, in the X-Men a few issues of, of about six months or so later. And, you know, and uh, that was, you know, it was just really kind of nice, but Wolverine was not designed to be some super popular character. We, we just felt we should add him to the staple of characters on the level of, you know, like the vision or, you know, yeah. one of those middle-level characters, but it turned out that it was a good enough idea, and it was handled well enough by people in the future. Especially when uh, Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum started doing the X-Men series and put him in there, and uh, Dave kind of gave him a real face beneath that mask, and Chris Chris fleshed him out as a character. And the next thing you know, between four, five, six of us, we we had a character that over the years became, you know, one of the handful of uh, most popular characters Marvel will ever came up with, but it was not our intention. We were just trying to sell a few comic books in, uh, in, in Ottawa, you know,
0: <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, Hugh Jackman himself didn't, uh, didn't know what a Wolverine was. He thought it was a wolf.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, and he, he should meet John Romita. Neither one of them. Well, it's not a name that's well known. I, I, I took it because I want, I just decided an animal, I didn't want to, you know, they'd had a captain Canuck character or captain Canada. And I didn't want something like that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so I, decided, cheesy, you know. yeah, so I decided so i had to have an animal that it could be in the states but it also had to be in canada and i thought of uh you know the are you think of the moose well that's not a very good name for a, for a hero you know because he's going to come on as a villain but of course the idea was i wasn't going to create a canadian character just to make a villain out of it the idea was he would become He had to have heroic possibilities too as you know so many marvel villains became heroes and vice versa yes. and uh so I thought of two animals before I talked to Lynn. One was the wolverine and the other was a badger. They were both, you know, fierce animals. <laughs> the badger doesn't have as good a sound. You know, ba- wolverine sounds like wolf, obviously, to to Hugh Jackman and John yeah. Romita to a lot of people. That's great. Where a badger, you know, the word badger is a verb. It means to kind of bother people. You badger yeah. somebody. So that that was a good name, and somebody else came up with a badger character a couple of years later that was kind of a copy of Wolverine. But I think that I made by the time I talked to Len, I'd made the choice. It was definitely Wolverine.
0: Well, thank you so much for for designing one of the greatest characters. Being you're part of you're in the lab, and you're part of one of the creators of one of the greatest characters. Who I think's having is it his 50th or 60th anniversary? I'm not even sure, but it's he's getting up
1: there now. His 50th anniversary will be in 1974. That's because that's when the comic book, you know, the first uh, Hulk number, oh, yeah. uh, 181 came out. So he's going to be 50 years old and uh, you know, I don't know how old Hugh Jackman is. Wolverine's going to be 50 next year.
0: Hugh Jackman's in his very early 50s, I can tell you. as Well, see, Australia, they're about the
1: same age That It's yeah, just about right. and he's
0: one of the greatest <laughs> exports Australia's ever had, Hugh Jackman. We love him. Um, he's, now, he's, a ver-
1: he's a very good actor, and he just was perfect for the role, yeah.
0: Yeah, he's great. Uh, now, I want to switch into something that is a personal passion of mine. Uh, that's Conan. Um, now, did you see yourself in the 70s? I mean, you were everywhere on Conan. Did you see yourself as a kind of steward of the Howard Properties, when you were creating and editing and writing the various conan books like because i think what you did with conan is landmark stuff
1: yes i uh i mean originally it was just acquiring a property for marvel because the readers were writing in and saying we should get the rights to one of these sword and sorcery characters obviously conan was the top choice we didn't think we could afford it turned out we could break a deal for conan which uh it was a happy uh, happenstance. Uh, but once I started doing it, I wasn't even planning to originally write the comic, but I ended up feeling that I should for at least an issue or two. And then it turned out I kind of liked it, so I just did it for the next 10 years. You know, I, I, It's it's not even, you know, I became the steward. In fact, I wouldn't even allow, it's not a case of nobody else wanted to write Conan. I just wouldn't let anybody. Write. I, I, I had the power to keep anybody else from writing Conan. If somebody came to me and said, I want to write a Conan story or have him guest star in and this and that, and I said, no. And Stan would, yeah. you know, back me up because I was the Conan guy. Uh, the only thing that came out in all that time was uh, when I let Len was I when I let uh, who was it? it was John Byrne and was, was it Len or somebody else? Whoever did the uh, that story where Spider-Man met Red Sonia, who Claremont. was oh, yeah, yeah Chris Claremont, right? Yeah. And I didn't do that because uh, you know I, I had great interest in writing Red Sonia. I, I I had co-created Red Sonia, but I didn't have as much. But if they had said Spider-Man meeting Conan, the answer would have been, you know, two letters.
0: (laughs) Now, um, when did it become obvious? Because when when did it become obvious? You start out by doing the adaptations of Robert E. Howard's stories. When was (coughs) it obvious that you needed to start churning out new Conan tales on top of the adaptations?
1: Well, well, within a year, Stan uh, came to me and said, we're starting a new black and white comic called Savage Tales. And... Originally, he toyed with the idea of the Cull character being the lead. Then, but by that point, the first issue, Conan the Barbarian, sales had come in, and they were pretty good. It kept going down for seven issues in a row after that. But the first issue sales were pretty good, so he immediately put Conan in as the cover star of Savage Tales number one. That's within a year of the book coming out. Uh, but then, you know, Conan hit a kind of a wall, and it sort of lost popularity for about seven issues in a row. It was even canceled for one day officially but but after it came as soon as it came back about the time about that time it began to kind of turn around with numbers eight and nine and so forth and and it just took a while to catch on for people because after all this wasn't a superhero uh, Barry Smith's style was you know a little strange it was influenced by Kirby and other people but the fact remains it was a kind of an odd style it, it's a medieval ancient kind of world so it just took a while for uh, the regular Marvel readers many of them to uh, to decide that maybe this book was worth uh, reading alongside Thor or the Hulk. After that point, by the uh, latter 70s, by 76, 77, 78, uh, I think Conan was one of the two or three biggest characters Marvel was doing in terms of sales. When, they had a, when the U.S. Mint made some medallions of three Marvel characters, they made them of, of uh, Spider-Man, the Hulk, who was on TV, and Conan, not uh, Captain America or Thor or somebody, uh, Marvel, for a while, had limited merchandising rights to you know, Conan. There, uh, after a few years, they couldn't do that anymore. So, you know, I was very pleased to see Conan become such a big, you know, popular character. And I just made that my own little fiefdom. I, and mm. rather unashamedly, I figured, you know, I, I brought the character there. I mean, uh, Stan, Stan and I. And so, why should somebody else write it? And t- as long as I wanted to write. Conan, I was going to write all the stories. When I left, they could give it to the janitor as far as I was concerned. I never, after I left Marvel in 1980, I didn't even read another Conan comic book until about 10 years later when they asked me to start writing it again. And then I went out and bought a bunch of old comic books to kind of bring up the speed, decided I didn't like what had been done in those 10 years that much anyway. So I just kind of abandoned most of it and started over again. Uh, And I did another several years of it. We, we didn't end up saving the character that had kind of lost popularity by that time. But, you know, all told, I guess I did about half of the uh, Conan issues out of about 275. I did roughly half of them at the beginning and end. So I'm, I'm kind amazing. of pleased with that.
0: I, I think it was a lot of fun. with Conan is absolutely amazing. Now, um, for me as a collector, it's always been a um, Barry Windsor Smith's incredible, but it's always been big John Buscema's Conan when I picture mm. Conan. How was it working with John? What was your relationship like? Because you did so much work together.
1: Well, I loved working with, you know, with, with Barry, with um, Neil Adams, with, you know, Gil Kane, and a number of people that were especially wonderful to work with. And Herb Tripp, yeah, I, I was really lucky to get to work with so many good people. But I, I suspect that really overall my all-time favorite collaborator, if you want to call him that, was John Buscema. Uh, because you gave him a story. You know, uh, it could be fairly detailed or it could be fairly rough, and you would get back, you know, something wonderful. It would almost always be at least as good as you felt you were expecting, and maybe a little bit better. Uh, Because John was the kind of guy who, as I always said, he could draw anything you could get him to want to draw or to be willing to draw. You you couldn't toss something at him that he couldn't draw and make look fairly good. I uh, came close once or twice but but by and large that that was true and I I just loved working with John as you probably know John was supposed to be the original Conan artist but right. we couldn't afford him because we had we were paying some r- money for the rights and the publisher insisted he was he wanted to kind of get that back by having a cheaper artist so we had this there's this kid in England Barry Smith you know who's just sitting around doing a few mystery stories here and there and I knew that he'd be good on Conan so when I couldn't afford John and I couldn't afford my second choice, Gil Kane, who was a big Conan fan since before I was born, probably. Uh, I went to Barry as being as as a guy that I knew could draw this kind of stuff rather than some other established artist. And I went out of my way to get Barry to be the artist. And it worked out, you know, very well for Marvel. It worked out very well for me. It worked out very well for the Robert E. Howard estate. So, you know, we all we all benefited from that.
0: Now, I, I believe uh, my research tells me that you have a story credit with Jerry Conway, who's been on the show on the Conan the Destroyer movie. Can you tell yeah. us about working on that movie with Dino De Laurentiis? How do you say his name? I'm not even sure. Dino De Laurentiis Laurenti- and the people involved?
1: Uh, it was was the name you were saying? Dick Giordano? Is that what you were saying?
0: I, I'm trying to get the the, the, the producer of Conan the Destroyer. Oh, you're talking about Dino
1: De Laurentiis.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Yes, yes. Well, Dino was this... I, I, you know, met him a number of times. He was this wonderful schlock producer. I mean, he, he had a wonderful knack for getting really top-flight properties and doing bad things with them. Uh, Firestarter by Stephen King, King Kong. You know, uh, it, it, he would he would get, had good ideas of what movies should be, but then between budgets and the directors he would hire and what he wanted done with them, they often became less than they should have been. Um he wasn't so involved with the first conan movie but he did help produce it and distribute it and uh he ended up kind of taking it over gradually as we were working on the second movie what happened is i had been an advisor a story consultant was the official term though i didn't get any screen credit out of it i got money but no screen credit uh to john millius on the first movie conan the barbarian which about a really two or three days work before john decided he didn't need me anymore and by a weird circumstance that would take too long to explain being in the first, being having that job on the first movie led me to be invited to uh, sort of, you know, audition. And by that time, Jerry Conway was my partner. So, uh, you know, we, we did it together to be the writer on the second one. And that's and that's what became. Uh, originally, it was going to be called Conan, King of Thieves mm-hmm. and, or, or else just Conan Two, but it was probably never going to have that title. It ended up being Conan the Destroyer. And Jerry and I uh, wrote the first, oh about five drafts of that film and then we and we had to fight for uh, for credit at the end because uh basically our story was used 80 or 90 percent of the plot of that movie uh is is ours my agent once said you know if you take that if you take that movie and you play it on a screen you turn down the sound it's practically your movie it's mostly just the dialogue that's been changed and one or two scenes were added uh we created you know almost all the characters including zula the black amazon character that we were very happy with and the basic
0: grace Grace uh, yeah
1: yeah and uh you know and dino just kept uh nickeling and diming it or whatever the italian equivalent is you know lyric it to death but every time we'd have a meeting with him uh the budget had shrunk by another million dollars so it only started out as 14 or 15 million uh, he was just determined to you know make a movie as cheaply as possible where the first movie was made in spain he made the second one in mexico you know uh he got a different uh a, dir- a director who was was not as pricey and uh, as independent as john millius uh in, in richard fleischer at the end and uh of course we were kind of bargain rate screenwriters too you know we didn't charge as much as john millius probably charged for the first so and uh, maybe you get what you pay for anyway the movie did not the movie did not turn out as well as we had hoped but and, I, and, you know, Jerry and I will take some of the responsibility for that. I, I think about 90% of it belongs to Dino and the choices he made.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I know Oliver Stone wrote a really wild post-apocalyptic screenplay for the original Conan movie. Did you ever have a look at that?
1: I, I own a copy of it. I still have it.
0: Yeah, yeah that's cool. I mean, it would have been
1: several hours long and cost a lot more money than Star Wars to make, you know, so it wasn't <laughs> going to be made. Uh, the reason he has a credit as a co-writer of the first movie is that John millius in a moment of, you know, uh, an overgenerous moment, guaranteed him, promised him he was going to have screenplay credit, and he used about one or two scenes from that screenplay in some form or other, and then he was kind of stuck with his promise, so he stuck his name out of there as the writer. But there's very little of obje- if, if you've ever seen that screenplay, it's it's filled with people. They all have names of like. I don't know, like Odin or something, or you know, they're all are They're all like names out of Norse or some some other mythology, and I don't remember much about it. It's been a lot of years since I uh, since I read it. Uh, I, I always tried to convince people to uh, let me write a, a comic book adaptation of it. It would have been kind of fun. It would have been a whole different kind of Conan. It would have had a lot of guts, just like John Milius' movie had in certain aspects. It would have had more guts than Conan the Destroyer did at the end.
0: I think it would have, that would be fascinating to see a comic book adaptation of it. Um, yeah. Now, when I, when I when you look back at your career and, and focus on Conan, it must be a real point of pride for you that you did so much for that Conan franchise. Because I, I honestly think you did as much as anyone, you know, Arnold and yourself, like since Robert E. Howard, to popularize the character with a mass audience.
1: That's funny you should mention. I think you're right. <laughs> and, yeah. But I'm, I'm happy to have done it. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it was just something I lucked into. It wasn't something I planned. Yeah. I had originally worked on getting the rice just as a, you know, because that was part of my job for Marvel. But once I started writing Conan, I really, you know, by that time I had read Robert E. Howard's writing. And while a lot of it is just, you know, pulp, blood and thunder stuff, but mm. he also had the soul of a poet. And there are turns of phrases or, and just ideas and things in there that at his best, and there's a little bit of his best in just about every story and a lot of it in some uh, you know, he's just really a wonderful writer who made up this kind of unique character, and and, and world, and so forth. And uh, you know, it's it's up there on a par with the worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs and H. P. Lovecraft and the great you know pulp writers that uh, created a lot of our popular culture. And I'm just very pleased to have you know been a part of it and to have had a hand in it. I remember one of the things I was proudest of when uh, the uh, uh, the movie was trying to be made. You know, they were having trouble selling it. Uh, my friend who was a co-producer for a while once said it was dead at every studio in town. You know, every studio that had a crack at that movie and mm-hmm. passed on it eventually. And and then eventually they, they decided they were going to make it. But it happened to be at a time they were trying to sell the movie at a time when the the books weren't available. The paperback books that had made Conan popular, uh, that company had gone into Chapter 11 bankruptcy due to some bad business moves. So there weren't any Conan paperbacks coming out new to help sell it or to convince movie uh, producers and movie studios that they should do a conan movie but they had these comic books that were selling really well by that stage you have not just you know you have both conan the barbarian and savage sort of conan and they're both making money and so forth so uh you know so instead of uh, taking along the paperbacks they would take along the comic books to uh have to show the studio and i remember watching sammy davis jr when he was hosting a uh a talk show once and he had Arnold Schwarzenegger on as a guest right after he had really? been signed to yeah. be Conan and uh Schwarzenegger said yes you know I am going to play Conan in a movie and Sammy Davis who was a favorite singer of mine anyway bless I his heart it. he said uh, he said, "Oh yeah, Conan, the comic book character. I mean, I could have kissed that guy. You know, the, the comic book character. Even though, of course, Conan was not primarily a comic book character." Sa- but,
0: Sammy Davis Jr. is one of the legends of the industry, Mister Entertainment himself, and uh, great yeah. to hear that he was a Conan reader. Um, I don't, I
1: don't know. He knew the character anyway. I mean, I I saw Sammy Davis sing, you know, five or ten times on theaters. I saw his him in the play Golden Boy on Broadway two or three times. I, really? I just love. Uh, you know, I mean, he wasn't Frank Sinatra, his idol, but he was the next best thing. Yeah, I, but, agree. Uh, with, I, I agree. I don't know if yeah. you know this, but Schwarzenegger was in line to play Conan like before there was a Conan movie even set. You know, I mean, really, uh, the producer uh, Ed Pressman, the original producer of the first movie, had wanted to. Uh, he didn't start off with Conan. He wanted to find a property for Schwarzenegger after he saw the movie Pumping Iron. He said, that guy Schwarzenegger, you know, he's got something. He's got charisma. He, sh- mm. he should be in a movie. And my friend Ed Summer, who ran a comic book store, and whom I knew in New York, uh, he's, he was a friend of uh, Pressman's. And he said uh, they were seeing a screening of Pumping Iron together. And he said, oh, well, you know, Schwarzenegger could play Conan. And Pressman looks at him and says, what's Conan? You know, the thing is, you know, if if something wasn't on TV or in movies, these guys didn't know. You know, they didn't know what was in books. They didn't know what was in magazines or newspapers. They just knew movies and television. And so the next thing you know, he he starts looking at uh, Conan uh, as a uh, property. He sees the comics. He sees the paperback books. And so, you know, Schwarzenegger was in there at the first. He was the top choice to be the uh, Conan. You know who was the second choice? Who was it? Uh, he wasn't as dying. famous as he would become about a year later. This is, but uh, uh, Rocky, oh,
0: Sylvester Stallone.
1: Can you imagine Sylvester, wow. Sylvester Stallone as Conan? I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, this is this was before Rocky came out. He had been in, uh, had a major part in a movie called The Lords of Flatbush and, and so forth. And the right. third choice, uh, if they started with an older Conan, which that what well, you know because you know they could have done that as King yeah. Conan was going to be was charles bronson those were the three talked wow. about but it was always wow. schwarzenegger the whole project got going because of schwarzenegger which is funny because you go back to about what issue to conan number four or five or something here's arnold schwarzenegger in an ad for bodybuilding in, you know opposite a co- page of conan art at a conan comic book years before schwarzenegger ever heard of conan
0: well i think they that's so interesting i didn't know that they got it right though so just wrapping up on conan um you came back and you did Road of Kings at Dark Horse in the two thousands. Um, yeah. Was that a lot of fun to come back to Conan, kind of modern artist? You know, I, I really enjoy that story. Yeah, it was
1: fun. You know, and, um, you know, nah, working for Dark Horse was never that much fun. I don't. know. I, I because oh, really? um, I didn't come in as a positional strength there. I was just I was just the writer. They chose the artist. I told them I didn't think the art the artist was a good artist. I didn't think he was right for Conan. After all, I had. I, what did I know about uh, you know Conan art I had only chosen Gil Kane John DeSimma, yeah. and Barry Smith as the first the of Conan what did I know about that and uh you know and you're working under <laughs> an editor and I didn't want to work under an editor and so forth so no I, it it was it was not as pleasant an experience as you might think I was happy to do it to do those 12 issues and there were a couple issues in the middle drawn by another artist that I thought were were better uh, and you know, kind of happy, and there were little pieces here and there. But no, I I was happy when I was doing Conan. I wanted to be the writer, and I wanted to be the editor, and these other and everybody else should be an artist or a reader.
0: I, I've got a question for you, then just, just wrapping up on Conan. When you why did you actually leave? Were you burned out? Had you done all your Conan, or was it politics at Marvel? Like, why did you leave Conan back in the? I, I left
1: because of, you know po- politics at Marvel. I didn't like the uh, the policies of the new editor. Uh, felt he had lied to me in some co- contract negotiations, so I just left. I was sorry to leave Marvel. I was sorry, sorry uh, to leave Conan, but you know, I, by that point, I had done what 110 or 15 issues, so you know, yeah, yeah, of just that comic plus about 60 of Savage Swords. It wasn't like I hadn't made made a mark, you know. And I didn't think I'd ever come back to it. And it turned out I ended up coming back to it for several years. Uh, but I, I'm happy to write Conan for anybody. You know, it doesn't matter to me what company it is. Titan Books yeah. that owns the rights uh, or has the rights now talk to me about writing something. But, you know, I don't know if they'll actually ever come back. And, you know, because I'm, I'm at, you know, at age 82 or even when I was in my 70s, I'm just kind of cantankerous now because I, I sort of feel like, you know. <laughs> Look, I know if, if I don't want somebody to come and tell me what Conan should be. If they don't if they want Roy Thomas to write a Conan story or whatever, fine. If they want to tell Roy Thomas what Conan story to write, F them, you know, that's basically. I totally
0: it. agree. Totally agree, yeah. Um speaking of Red Sonja, I know this was a character you created um, yeah. and she was a great addition to the Conan universe. What can you tell us about Red Sonia. I know in the '70s she became really big cosplay attraction. I know you did work with Frank Thorne. Mm -hmm. Give give us your two cents on Red Sonia in the '70s because she was a real thing.
1: This year is the 50th anniversary since uh, you know of Red Sonia. Now the thing is, Red Sonia, the original Red Sonia, was a Robert E. Howard character in one story, not a Conan story, but a Mm -hmm. a story set in around the 15th century. And I was. I was looking for a, not a girlfriend, but a, a woman warrior who could sort of come in and out of the Conan stories. Yep. And there were two women in, in Conan. Uh, Bayle, the pirate mm-hmm. queen, who was mm-hmm. had dark hair. And there was a blonde, Valeria, that he would meet later. So I said, I want a, I want a, a redhead. I, I want a redheaded warrior. By sheer coincidence, so, while I was thinking in those terms, I stumbled upon an article that mentioned this redheaded Woman warrior in this story set in sort of like the Crusades times, or, or at least the late Crusades. Right. Uh, it was during the period of the siege of Vienna by the Turks in like the 15, 1400s mm-hmm. and uh, I so I got the literary agent for the Howard Estate, uh Glenn Lord, to send me a copy of that story, which hadn't been in print since the nineteen thirties. And I said, "This is perfect. I'll just turn the hero, who was a German, into Conan." And Red Sonia, I just changed the spelling from a Y in Sonia to a J to make her sort of a new character. Yeah. Gave the story to Barry Smith, and uh, you know we uh, and the rest, as they say, is comic book history.
0: And and I don't mean to get into your personal stuff, but I know they're making a new movie. Do you get participation points from whoever holds the rights to Red Sonia? Like, do you have a piece of it?
1: i don't have any particular rights but they've been ge- very generous they just they sent me a nice uh, sizable check they had not made the movie yet this last mm. year and yeah, some years before that i got another one and supposedly i'm supposed to have credit with robert e howard i don't know if barry will have credit or not mm. uh I, I have no opposition to that but the character would have existed whether barry or anybody else was drawing conan you know mm. but uh he's the first person who drew her certainly and uh uh, supposedly, Robertie Howard and I, at least, will be sharing credit on the movie, uh, and I hope that's true. If it doesn't, well, you know, hey, I, I've already cashed a check. They can't yeah, take it. You got right. your cash.
0: Look, I really hope it does happen because I, I think she's a fantastic character. Wow. I love her. I love her. Maybe not quite as much as Kona, but she's right up there. I think mm-hmm. she's a great character. Now, mm-hmm. one of our um, uh, one of our friends of the show is Margaret Weiss, who wrote the Dragonlance um, series, yes. and she's a, she's a lovely woman. Now, I know that you. According to Wikipedia, you adapted some of the Dragonlance books as comics. Can you tell us about that? Like, was it all six of the books, or was it just a few of them? What was the story?
1: Uh, yeah, it started off being for TSR, which was the gaming company. Yes. And then that got switched over to DC. So I did about what, the equivalent of, what, four or five graphic novels, I guess, with different with Tony DeZuniga and, I think, Ron Randall, a couple of different people. Uh, yeah, my, my, my friend and manager here, uh, John Samino, uh, is uh, in contact with uh, – uh miss wise what is but, this
0: yeah. Margaret Weiss, yeah. she's, what is
1: she's this a lovely what's woman, this in front of man? my it's face what is it woman. i showed him where it's off oh yeah but yeah i i enjoyed those uh those books you know basically you know it was just they were sort of a tolkien-esque kind of thing and i, I sort of like that the one problem i ever had with the books is that because it came out of uh, a game yeah in essence uh and since everybody had his his or her character when they were playing the game, there'd be eight or 10 or 15 characters, and it seems like they were going around an awful lot in this great big group, which became a little unwieldy. But <laughs> other than that, I I, I liked doing the uh, the series. I had a lot of fun with it for those five or six.
0: I was going to you check know, it maybe. out, man, because that's a Dungeons & Dragons party that, you, that you're walking around with. That It's yeah. like the thief, it's yeah. the wizard, it's the fighter, it's this mm-hmm. and that, you know, like, it, they're great. Yeah. Um, I
1: now, have to say, I have never played... Dungeons and Dragons or any kind of role-playing or video game in my entire life. Really? If I want to do that, you know, I go write a comic book. You know, Somebody else plays you know, Dungeons and Dragons, and that's just fine.
0: That's fine, but I want to thank you for, for doing the Dragonlance saga, because they were huge to me. as You're a welcome. kid. Now, I, I want to ask you, um, before you go, I know we're wrapping up. Um, as editor-in-chief in the early 70s, um, obviously you came in straight after Stan. He was busy in Hollywood. Was it a time of turmoil at Marvel? What were your key <laughs> challenges you faced
1: what years are you talking about?
0: Oh, when you became editor-in-chief in Marvel oh. sometime in the 70s, yeah. Okay.
1: I got confused because you mentioned Stan in Hollywood. He didn't move out to L.A. until uh, the early 80s. Oh, really? Um, okay. In 72, what happened is is that Stan became edit- uh, the publisher and president of Marvel Comics, got it kind of cut off into its own company as opposed to being part of the larger company Martin Goodman had founded You know, before so that Marvel Comics became its own entity with Stan as the head of it, and there he therefore he needed another editor. So I just got sort of moved up from associate editor to uh, what was soon decided to be the title of editor-in-chief, which was the same as what he, the title he had had as editor. Did you enjoy it? But I was still working very closely with him. Stan was very Wrong. much in charge. I sometimes felt as much like a shop foreman as I did like the editor-in-chief, but I didn't mind. I had no particular ambition to you know to to rush off and leave stan lee behind as far as i was concerned he had taught me much of what i knew and i just felt we made a good team and i was i was quite prepared to play bucky to his captain america
0: i, I yeah look i think stan lee's one of the all-time legends uh, in comics of all time i mean he we wouldn't be here talking without stan you know what i mean oh like- very definitely. Now, um, Roy, I, I want to thank you so much for your time, but I, I do want to give the floor to you to promote anything you've got currently. It, tell p- people, you know, where they can find anything that, you you, you know, you want to yeah. sort of do.
1: Well, I'm, I'm working on, you know, projects of a few personally owned things that I, uh, to try to come out with comics in the future. I have, besides my alter ego uh, comics history magazine, which I'm mm-hmm. up now up to about 180-something issues of... Wow. Uh, uh, my wife and I, an artist co-created a, a superhero called alter ego back in the eight the six eighties. And we're, you know, the artist Ron Harris and I are working on another one of those again. And there's another character that my wife and I co-created a pair of characters called captain thunder and blue ball. We're working on one of those because, you know, we own the characters. So we want to kind of keep those alive. Uh, otherwise I mostly write, you know, uh, introductions to books from Marvel or other companies that, you know, uh, and, and one of them, which, uh, I'll just show here. I don't I, I don't have a piece of this. I don't get a royalty. If it sells 4 million copies, I'm not going to get another dime. But I'm just kind of happy with it because it's a book called Marvel Value Stamps. You remember Marvel Value Stamps from the 70s? You've seen those? Yeah, I have it's,
0: seen them, yeah, yeah.
1: Those stamps that you were supposed to cut out of books and paste into another book, and then you'd yes. get some kind of fabulous prize. Well... You know, they asked me to to uh, you know go over this book and sort of like write an introductory, and, and I said, well, you have to understand, I'll I'll be happy to do it, but you have to understand, I hated. <laughs> marvel value was because we would cut up their comics and I, I wanted to sell the comic books i didn't want to sell a bunch of pictures that people cut out of them the like they're little, the I said little kids our average reader wasn't even a little kid anymore like they might have been you know but <laughs> the nice thing is is i told the editor charlie cookman at uh abram art books what uh, when the, when he sent me an co- advanced copy of this book uh, a few weeks ago it's just about to come out yeah. um, I told him, I said, you know, the thing about this book to me is it's about five or ten times better than it should be because it's about a <laughs> subject I don't like, but it's really well done. It shows all the stamps. It shows what page they appeared on in the books. It shows the source, the panel or page or cover or whatever from a Marvel comic got it out of it. Sometimes how the how the drawing was redone, you I'm know. Getting, I'm, I'm going to buy it. it. I, it's it's sure, kind of a it's fascinating, uh, I think it's a fascinating book that, you know, as I said, it's it's a book that you'd think ah, I would just be a throwaway book, but it's actually a pretty good book that I think uh, people will find kind of fascinating if they take it. As I said, I got I have no stake in it. I just think it's kind of a uh, an interesting book to uh, for people to well, take a look at.
0: It looks great now, Roy. I do want to say thank you so much for your time. Whenever you have anything you'd like to promote, you're more than welcome on Signal. We love your work. I feel like we've scratched the surface, but I want to say thank you so much for your time mm-hmm. and so much for your yeah. work over the years.
1: Well, I, I was hoping to get, you know, get down to Australia, but we, we weren't able to make it despite an invitation because of all the other conventions. Maybe next year. I, I was down in Sydney in uh, 2001, and I'd like to make it back and make it to the Outback for two or three days. I'm, maybe I'll make it this time next year. Oh,
0: man, I'd love to see you. Thank yeah, you so well, much, Roy. You're an absolute right. thank, legend.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Bye. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. <laughs>